as business leaders, you can help set the direction for an understanding of where in your business could an acceleration really bring strategic distance? Where could the types of advantages, the types of answers that Gen AI can deliver help? And where can it not? Because there is a little bit of shiny object syndrome going on with Gen AI right now that it's not appropriate for every type of question. From McKinsey & Company, I'm Sean Brown and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. That was Laura LaBerge, who's with us today to discuss driving innovation with generative AI. Gen AI has been one of the hottest topics of 2023, and sometimes it may seem like everyone is trying to identify ways to make use of it in their business and personal lives. Today, we're going to discuss how to use Gen AI to drive and support innovation. Laura is an expert in our growth strategy and innovation practice, and she works with clients on digitally driven innovations, strategies, and transformations. And Laura is also a co-author of the recent article, Companies with Innovative Cultures Have a Big Edge with Generative AI. Laura, welcome. Thanks, Sean. Excited to be here. Also joining us today is Matt Banholzer, a partner and the global co-leader of our growth strategy and innovation practice. Matt serves organizations on innovation strategy across a number of industries, including energy, basic materials, and agriculture. Matt co-authored the article with Laura, which we'll also share in our show notes. All right, Matt, before we get into how Gen AI can help businesses innovate, can we talk a little bit about why and when companies actually need help with innovation? Are leading innovators doing something that others are not? We actually have done some research that believes the world may be transitioning to another era, right? If you think about, you know, the post-war boom to what's been going on to the mid-century to the era of markets recently, it does seem like there are different shifts going on in the world, right? The multipolar world, post-digital demographic shifts, et cetera. And one takeaway we had from this is if you want to grow and thrive in this new world, you actually do have to innovate because basically what got you here may not get you there. A lot of the norms in your business and how it's run, how your products fit with their markets, how business models come together may not be true. And actually not innovating, we actually do believe is going to be more risky than trying to take that bet and you know go to that adjacent growth. And we actually start to see that finding new sources of growth is really important in this era. 86% of the companies are still focused on growth and cost in this era of uncertainty. It's not only about battening down the hatches, but it's about using productivity to generate that cash flow or oxygen for growth that you can then go and try and you know create your new beachhead in this ever-changing world. What we see is that the leading companies, the top economic performers, right? This is looking at revenue and EBITDA performance. They're actually looking about innovating within their core for new offerings, going to different parts of the value chain. And also thinking about actually building new businesses entirely and going to a true breakout growth. So what I hear you saying is that the best performers aren't just trying to weather the uncertainty, but that they're also making bold innovation bets for the future. Maybe before we go further, let's define exactly what you mean by innovation. So when we talk about this, there's a common definition of innovation we tend to use at McKinsey around, it's not just new products. New products are an important part of innovation, but it's also about new processes, how you run and do your business better because those can create competitive advantage over time and enable you to be more fluid and adaptive or just have durable cost advantages, for instance. It's also about new customer experiences, not just in B2C, but B2B markets uh, and how you engage with the customers to kind of create stickiness or to create new beachheads. 
and it's also about new business models. Um, and new business models covers everything from shifting uh, value propositions and economic models. You know, the famous example in the last 10 years has always been going from selling products to selling services or subscription-based approaches to recurring revenue. That's just one flavor of that type of innovation. Other business model innovations include things like different routes to market, using your assets in new ways and new capabilities. And those can be physical assets that you're repurposing for new products, or it could be uh, intangible assets like your intellectual property, um, which, which could be things like brand or also things like uh, technical IP, patents, et cetera. And putting those together in new ways creates great outcomes. And what we find is enabling that type of innovation growth is this idea of an innovation culture. And this is based on a survey we launched, which really got into this idea of, well, what is driving out performance? And when we ran this survey, we just were shocked at like the incredible disconnect. It's rare you run a survey and see 1000% plus, you know, percentage differences um, between top performers and bottom performers correlated to the innovation culture. And so what we found to see is like, well, if you have a strong innovation culture, you're finding the products and services are leading the industry. You actually really are focused on best in class speed. And with Gen AI, um, it is about doing and testing and developing and deploying, not about talking about the leading companies were deploying Gen AI, you know, days and weeks, or even, you know, after everyone kind of caught fire late last year. And actually some of them were doing uh, work with GPT, et cetera, you know, one or two years even before it took off. And what that lets them do is actually launch products and get more out of R&D very quickly. So, uh, go ahead, Sean. So, culture plays an important role in supporting innovation. How do you assess, uh, you know, how do you as a leader assess whether you have the kind of innovation culture you're talking about, Matt? You know, that's a great question. Um, and so, I think, you know, the short answer is one, I think that the short version I would give is you were to actually go onto McKinsey's website and there's a few articles like the committed innovator or innovation under uncertainty. We talk about what we define as innovation, um, but also talk about what we find as the building blocks of an innovative culture. Are you setting truly bold aspirations that require innovation to meet your strategic goals? I think you'd be shocked how many times companies can deliver their strategy without innovation and then are surprised when they don't innovate. There's also elements of the innovation culture around uh, customer-backed insights and really kind of thinking about what the market's telling you. They also really focus on not over-relying on assertions. A lot of times people can assert what they think is true, and that usually works well in business as usual, but innovation, it's all about challenging assumptions, not just going with assertions. And then finally, what they also do quite a bit is actually think about how do they enable iterative development and embracing uncertainty. Thanks, Matt. So we've talked a little bit about how these top innovators approach their business processes and set their aspirations. Can we touch on whether there are any particular areas where they focus their attention and investment? And maybe Laura, you could take this one. So one of the things they're doing internally is not surprisingly, they are investing more in R&D and in digital technology. What's interesting about how they are spending on digital technology is that it's not just more, they're actually getting much higher ROI and they're investing differently. So the, we just saw that it was on average 55% more spend, but where they're allocating these are they're strategically choosing investments in technology that apply to areas where they're going to be able to drive strategic differentiation. So around the topics of speed, granularity, and integration. All of these are things that they are doing 
significantly, you know, two, three X more than the average company and, you know, five X in sometimes some cases, nine X more than organizations who are weak innovators. And the reason that this is important is that this pre-wires them to take advantage of additional types of technologies like Gen AI. So on your point about speed, what are these companies doing to differentiate themselves there? Under speed, it's things like business leaders actually able to, and product teams using real-time data to drive improvements. The extensive use of technology throughout the organization with sort of a going beyond simple um, automation really having these integrated processes already in place in terms of DevSecOps so you're not having data security issues and things like that as you go fast and just hardwiring this all together. Granularity, it's all about data and streamlining processes and leveraging machine learning to analyze things at a scale that they weren't able to do before. And integration, as Matt said, right, it's these, you know, org-wide end-user focus, these cross-functional teams having seamless embedding of control functions, all of these things innovative companies had before Gen AI even came into play. And it turns out that that is really critical in being able to both take advantage of Gen AI and not have some of the risks uh, coming at them that other organizations have found. Got it. So how are these innovation-driven companies actually deploying Gen AI? Are they just experimenting more frequently or are they actually implementing this technology across their organizations broadly? Top innovators are way ahead in how they are already deploying generative AI at scale to accelerate things like R&D and innovation processes. And if you think about why this might be, it goes back to, first of all, this isn't new. We've seen in the past that these organizations have been ahead on many other types of tech advances, whether it was the IoT technologies, whether it was other flavors of AI pre-Gen AI uh, design uh, engineering and design thinking into their processes, adding design thinking into their processes. They were ahead on those technologies as well. And so it's not new that they are first and bolder in it. I think what's really interesting in this moment is the degree to which Gen AI can play to their strengths. Interesting. So what can those companies that are actually in the early stages of experimentation with Gen AI learn from the companies that you just described who are already forging quickly ahead? What are the innovators doing differently? We took out five really big items when we started talking to these couple thousand companies and people inside of them. The one is like knowing how to ask good questions from generative AI. This goes beyond the simple prompt engineering, right? Of course, there's ways to think about the syntax and how you try and use it to avoid garbage in and garbage out. But there is something about understanding the, the valuable problems that you need to solve in your business, understanding how you can use Gen AI to plug into those, and then using it to plug those gaps. The second thing was actually this idea around how do you spot bad answers and weed them out? And this sounds like, again, a general Gen AI behavior around, well, that doesn't make any sense to me or that wasn't helpful, so I'm not going to use it. Yeah, that, that's kind of trivial. This is actually about, I think, the deeper um, skill set that top innovators have, which is they're always challenging assertions and thinking about them as assumptions. 
So when new business is being built or a new product is being launched that's different from your core, there's usually many different assumptions that can underpin success, assumptions around the, the customer preferences, the willingness to pay, assumptions around can you manufacture it, assumptions around the sales force ability to sell the new product without feeling like they're cannibalizing, et cetera. And again, in business as usual, you can kind of assert how it's going to go because you have pattern recognition. In innovation, you actually have to question all of that. And that skill set translates very cleanly into Gen AI. And that when the Gen AI spits out an answer, they're actually trying to think about, is this a useful answer? Or if it's bad, how can I think about using it in a different way? The third one is they're continually building proprietary data. I think LLMs and Gen AI in particular are a great way to rapidly summarize and synthesize data, but it is limited in thinking about driving, I would say, true insight out of this uh, unstructured data for the most part, especially when it gets to very niche or specific corporate decisions you're trying to make. You know, within McKinsey, for instance, we actually have our own internal Gen AI tools and they're, they're, they're hardwired into some of our other proprietary AI databases. You know, we have our own databases on company performance, our own databases on market size and adoption, et cetera. And again, we wire those two things together to make sure that not only are the answers um, being synthesized in the right way, but we can take that next logical leap and then use that to sift through data that others don't have. And that's really what's separating a lot of folks um, from the ability to do a general workflow enhancement or using it for more you know, automation of lower value add tasks, like very basic customer service requests to really getting insight out of it. The learning quickly and changing course is very important as a general skill. Again, this is a core innovation skill, right? If we think about agile, which again is a very popular word in the last 10 years, agile effectively is the ability to move forward under uncertainty, the ability to test and learn and take steps without knowing the full answer. And that's like what we're doing with how people are using Gen AI. They say, well, this workflow may not work out with Gen AI, but we're going to test it. And then we're going to scale it as fast as we can. And that test and learn iterative loop is actually how people really start to escape some of that pilot purgatory. And then the last thing we see that they do differently is actually having workflows that are wired to actually go from start to finish where Gen AI plugs in, the humans asking the questions or spotting the bad answers. But if you can try and get a lot of steps linked together between using an example or a CRM system to go from identifying customers to having the Gen AI develop you know, potential prompts to reach out to these customers to then following up, you can actually think about wiring together your systems in a very core way between different systems to make that more effective. And what you're doing is basically making it as easy, as seamless as it is for your sales folks to, to engage that way. And so it still is handing off to human and the human's driving it, but there's a core piece of it that's just you know running through. And again, that's, that, that, that's an idea that's really uh, good to do tests and learn and be disruptive as we go. So this rewiring that you just talked about, how do you start to put it in place if you're only in the early stages of Gen AI adoption? Is, and is the pre-wiring something you can do in stages or is it really an all or nothing thing? So Matt, I'll go first and then you pile on. But I, I think that it is not necessarily doing all at once and certainly not doing all at once at scale. But there is sort of a baseline of do no harm first, right? Especially with some of the data security elements of this. I've worked with some clients who, you know, they had some folks in their organization who weren't as aware of if you put things into chat GPT, as you look into the abyss, the abyss looks back, right? And and so there were some data security breaches that happened. And so as you start to experiment with these technologies, the first thing you really want to make sure is that you understand from a regulatory perspective and from your own data security perspective, 
what boundaries do you want to put on the experimentation? And then really get into understanding where within your organization would it drive the most strategic advantage to be accelerated, to be ahead, to be more granular and pick those and start testing with cross-functional teams that will provide the right set of guardrails and insights so that you can learn really quickly in a defined sandbox. Yep. And that's right. I think almost everyone we've worked with in leading companies have taken a use case driven approach where they say, let's pick one element that we know we want to transform. And sometimes it's a, the early examples were much more skewed to things like, you know, customer service prompts, et cetera, um, and scaling from there. But we've actually seen that it can come from anywhere. And actually one thing I want to emphasize in this research was we looked at companies in every sector, including pharma, chemicals, you know, heavy industrials, not just digital, you know, finance, et cetera. And we've seen that actually some of these cases are around, like, how do we actually drive new molecule discovery um, and chemicals and pharma as well? And so what you're basically doing to your point is you're trying to create a breakout innovation in a way that has low risk if it goes sideways. For, so for instance, in a chemical R&D context, you know, getting a very large library of candidate molecules is the first step, whether it's generated by AI or it's generated by an expert. And there's many stop gaps that follow from there around synthesizing the chemical, testing its properties, testing if it works, et cetera, just like in pharma would go through other types of trials. But what you're really doing is accelerating a very slow, early step, like getting that initial idea can be difficult. And I think then what they start to think about is they learn organizational elements that then can be translated to other functions. So in able to spot the, ask the good questions, right? Well, how do you think about prompting for the molecule or spotting the bad answers or how you iterate that then can be applied to the customer service example, can be applied to um, business intelligence, et cetera. And so I think that that iterative approach is applied not just to how to use the AI in its core workflow, but actually how you think about scaling it across the company. Thank you both. Now, there have been a number of regulations introduced or discussed uh, related to generative AI. What impact, if any, might those regulations have on the five pre-wiring areas that we just talked about? You know, it's a good question. And yeah, I think, you know, there's no shortage of debate on the internet about some of these executive orders and regulations that have come down. I think this kind of goes to a core belief that Gen AI is a very powerful tool. And a lot of the regulations, as I read them, are a bit more focused on how you declare your use of the tool or how the tool itself can become more powerful over time, right? You know, whether you're using, um, you know, a GPT 3.5 versus 4 Turbo or using, you know, any other provider of, of AI like Grok, et cetera, you're basically trying to plug a tool into your workflow to drive your experience more, more effectively. I think that's actually similar to any other type of uh, regulation, right? Um, back to my chemicals examples, there's regulations on chemicals and what can be used of, you know, how you synthesize safety regulations of synthesis, et cetera. It's your choice to say, well, if I want to use a more advanced chemical that requires more guardrails, but it gives me competitive advantage, I use it. I think it's the same philosophy that behind a lot of these items here too. Yeah, I agree with that. And I would say that it's likely to progress along similar lines as what we saw with different regulatory uh, aspects of personal data uh, and general data usage, right? And it varied sometimes by region and it evolved over time. And organizations had to stay on top of it and adapt. And it was it was challenging and continues to be challenging. And I think that we're going to see similar regulatory. We, we just, as a society, we're learning as we go on this. And the regulatory is following in some ways. 
Uh, and so it's going to be it, it's going to be a a journey. Are things different for companies in regulated industries like banking or insurance? This is where I think taking the broader view to innovation really matters, right? Because you know there are potentially a little bit more constraints on your business model in a regulated industry, for instance. But when you think about items like consumer or customer experience, there's a lot you can do to engage with them in a new way to help nudge and motivate behaviors, right? A classic example of this is the customer experience of using smart thermostats or thinking about how they you know, work to understand their energy usage with a utility and how they partner with that ecosystem. You know, that's, a, that's an example of using an emerging technology, in that case, an IoT device to, to drive innovation in the industry. Yeah, they're giving you a little bit more care taken to what you can and can't do. I think in the case of Gen AI, we're still seeing broad approaches to, um, to, to using it. I think there's a care that needs to be done in terms of using specific data sources, which you can and can't put into the models and be careful of how you set up the model. You know, I think there is a misconception that whenever you use Gen AI, it's going into the cloud and that data becomes public. There's actually ways to firewall and keep it quite private on your own, on your own approach. Okay, great. So let's maybe dive a bit deeper into these five areas. Can you offer any more insights on how to ask Gen AI good questions? Yeah. Um, you might be noticing a theme in my discussion on everything old is new again. Gen AI can let you leapfrog a lot, but a lot of the skills to use to get the most out of it are skills that have been honed from doing things like product launches or using things like machine learning all along in the last decade. But what was surprising to us was the degree of differentiation between the top performers and the bottom performers. So what we say by this is these are people who have honed the ability to understand the limitations of the tool you're using. You know, just like you don't ask a hammer to turn a screw, um, you use a screwdriver for that. You don't ask Gen AI or machine learning um, certain, certain answers that are best used with other approaches. And so when we think about this, this is around how do you actually avoid the garbage in, garbage out? How do you put in answerable questions? How do you understand the reliability of data? What that comes down to a lot is understanding that there are probably very specific questions at any one given point in a workflow that you can automate or make more effective and fast um, to respond to by actually, you know, this is where actually some of that prompt engineering can come in. If you just ask a sales team or a researcher to, hey, just use this tool and see what you get, it doesn't, it doesn't work. However, if you actually say like, hey, we know there are five core questions that are just always associated with opening up a sales lead, or we know there are five elements of functional groups on molecules that we always want to explore to get a new property, you can actually start to hardwire in those questions, right? And it doesn't have to be only informal guidelines. Like sometimes when people are early experimenting in these companies, they're just giving loose guidelines to the users and letting them learn. But as they get more sophisticated, you actually almost engineer these questions and contextualize them as time goes on, right? So again, using an example from inside of McKinsey, you know, we have some knowledge tools using Gen AI that actually let us, you know, search our internal databases. And, you know, I would say back in March, the prompt was, hey, you know, here's our internal tool with a custom data set powered by a certain engine. You know, if you look at it now, we have tools that actually take a prompt and then realize there's five or six other questions associated with that that tend to be highly correlated. And we automatically push those questions to the engine to correlate and give contextual answers, as well as linking it to other workflows. And so this, and then also we do is trying to have guardrails around what you can and can't trust. We're very focused on citations and source data, et cetera. You know, when you have to, when you can't, you know, rely on quote unquote hallucinated data. 
And that type of guardrail, I mean, again, goes back to this idea of assertion versus assumption, really challenging um, that versus business as usual. And the other thing that I would just add to this is, to Matt's point earlier, top innovators aren't just asking questions about new products or new offerings, right? They're also asking questions about their business model. They know how to bring in AI and generative AI to test and look at things like very granular elements of the competitive landscape, the patent landscape, the uh, deal flows, ways of testing things in market through data that a lot of organizations just aren't doing. So there's the coming up with the new offering part of it, but then there's also a broader business model aspect to how they're deploying AI and generative AI in asking questions all along in all areas of their business that a lot of other organizations just aren't doing. Hmm. So what about dealing with bad answers or hallucinated data that Matt mentioned previously? What makes strong innovators better at handling that challenge? I think one of the things that we really see innovative companies and particularly innovative companies that have experience with AI are ahead on is this and, and having integrated teams, et cetera, is this ability to spot bad answers. And while this is always true in any context, there's a reason why we stress this a little bit more with generative AI. So, you know, if I think about traditionally in just a general context of if I have a team, like let's say my Salesforce is really trying to understand what do organizations make purchasing decisions on that I'm trying to sell to. And I've seen, I've worked with companies where, you know, in one case, the sales force decide, realized there was one really key factor. And so they they changed their messaging to really stress this, this particular element of the product. Unfortunately, it was not an element of the product that the company actually was able to produce. And so there was this big disconnect on it was optimizing in one area you know, it had just focused its questions on one area and then the rest of the organization wasn't involved in it and couldn't deliver on it. So cross-functional teams have always been a good idea. Why that's so critical with generative AI is if you think of the notion of what, what is the term generative meaning, right? So generative AI actually can create new answers. If you think about it with art, you know, it, it learns from looking at a bunch of art and then it creates new art. And if you think about literature, it reads a bunch of literature and it can create new literature. There's debate about those elements of it. But if, or for writing code, right, it reads existing code and it can write new code. When when you're asking questions though, that are around, let's say I want to look at patents or I want to look at um, articles that talk about certain regulatory changes, you, you have to be careful if you are somehow asking a question that might make it generate an article that didn't exist and it's a citation that isn't real. And if you don't have experience in these cross-functional teams with broader perspectives, able to spot things that just don't make sense, or you're using forms of generative AI that don't show you the sources that they're drawing on, you can sometimes end up with these hallucinations. And so both in terms of making sure that you're not asking a question that optimizes only for one part of the business, but actually can be detrimental to other parts of the business, but also the ability to understand when you might be getting made up answers based on, you know, you've gone too many cycles and it's and it's drawing on its own outputs. 
to feed your answer. You want to be able to have teams that can spot that. And so the other element of this that we we alluded to earlier is, you know, innovative companies are way ahead on also having the control functions seamlessly embedded in the work that they're doing. And so this, again, just helps mitigate the risk of, you know, as regulations are changing with the applications of data, with the applications of Gen AI, you want to make sure that any teams that are experimenting with this are connected with the parts of your organization that are paying attention to those regulatory changes or are educating people on how to use and protect your proprietary insights and data so that you don't accidentally make it public by using a Gen AI tool that you know is more open access. Yeah. Hey, Laura, I would love to pile on one thing and then Sean, yeah, it sounds like here's a question. I think this is the example, and we'll come back to this on some other elements, where you as business leaders really can add a lot of value uh, as a enterprise leader, right? Because you look at this, these are things around integrated control functions or forcing you know cross-functional teams to be part of the answer. Those are decisions you make as resource reallocators or decision makers in companies, right? To say, Hey, we're going to do Gen AI. It's not going to be five people, you know, in the IT department playing with it. It's actually going to be a cross-functional team, and I'm going to deploy some Salesforce or some PL folks to it. Similarly, if it's about integrated control functions, it's like we're going to go big on this, and we're going to actually feel more confident about we're going to go big on it because we put these control functions and feedback loops in. And so, while this might sound, um, you know, again, uh, a little bit more abstract, we think there's very pragmatic things leaders can do um, to take these, these learnings and apply them to your own company. And I think this is also where bold leadership at every level of a company is really important to, to activate this. A lot of times leaders say, well, let's just let this sort of go. We'll have five interested people do it because I'm not so familiar with it. Whereas if you can actually say, no, 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 I'm going to lead from the front and I'm going to have confidence that if I do this right, I have in some cases a five or 10 X higher odds of success. That's something that I think business leaders can uniquely drive here that we learn from this. Yep. Oh, go ahead, Tom. That's great. So how would you recommend approaching investment in more or better proprietary data to feed your Gen AI models? And and how do you start? Do you start small with a narrow use case? Yeah, it's it's a great question. And, and, and thanks for, for steering us here. I would say, you know, this is an idea again of, well, if you need to make bold decisions around collecting proprietary data or linking in your systems, you probably should do that. And again, that's something a business leader can push and drive and advocate for versus not. Now, I would say it's it's an iterative answer. I, I would say there's very few companies that take general um, gen AI and just apply it everywhere across the company because they kind of have decreasing marginal returns and general gen AI without a lot of proprietary data doesn't give much insight. At the same time, you don't want to over-engineer the first use case by hooking up and hardwiring you know, many different data sets until you know what's going on. So what we typically find is this use case driven model is that you'll take one or two that might have a lower proprietary data load or are easy to take one or two of your data sets and link together, learn how that's coming together, and then expand from there into the next use case, the next use case, the next use case as we go. Got it. Let's dive a bit more into this learning fast point. Is it better for existing members of your organization to learn from in-house experiments or to hire talent from the outside that already brings some of that experience and expertise? Or, or do you normally see it be a combination of the two? We, we actually looked at a lot of what drives high-performing innovation teams. There's actually an article a few years out back about that. And what we find is there's different traits to drive performance. There's some hard skills which people tend to over-index on, which are things like data science or 
um, you know, development, you know, developer skills. What we find is actually there's a few categories of skills that are soft skills when it comes to innovation around the ability to um, have a bold vision uh, and understand where a new product or service can fit. There is a skill set around collaboration and be able to navigate an organization to rally resources. There's a skill set around being humble and continuously learning, for instance, as well. And there's also a skill set around just actually being a bit more quantitative and analytical and actually marrying the conceptual to the analytical. And so when you drop some, I think the answer is yes, you probably do need to bring people into an organization, but in a way that complements those four skills. If you have all of those four skills, odds are actually you're an entrepreneur yourself. It's hard to find four of those skills all in one person in a corporation. And so I think it's actually not about dropping one person in and expecting them to do it all on their own. Um, that usually fails. It's also not about trying to take your own team and have them do new things. I think there's that Einstein quote of doing the same thing over and over again is the definition of insanity. But there is a way to merge the two. How do you actually think about the skills that your team has and drop them in? Yeah. And the other just quick thing I'll add on the talent point is that most of the innovative organizations that we look like in their top team, in their executive leadership team, they had a much higher percentage of leaders who had you know, some tech savviness. And to expect it to be pushed up from the bottom is very difficult and typically does not work. On the agile point, one of the biggest differentiators, it is the ability to be agile org-wide. This is something that top innovators are way ahead of others on. And the reason that this matters so much is that if you think about you have a bus and the four wheels of your bus, and if you have one of them going at 200 miles an hour and all the rest of them going at 20 miles an hour, you're not going to get anywhere faster with that bus. And we see a lot of organizations investing in various spot areas with technology and getting very low ROIs because they're just not able to get the benefit out of those, whether it's data or analytics or AI or Gen AI, because the organization can't take an action based on any of those insights that's provided. Or even worst case scenario, it takes like stutter step actions that all it does is signal to the market that there's an opportunity and somebody who is more agile can go and capture it. So this is an area that is really important and I think is sort of the rate limiting step. You have to understand what is your rate limiting step as an organization and make sure you don't waste money out investing in parts of the business that are going to accelerate that way beyond your organization's ability to execute on it and find ways to unlock those bottlenecks. We've done research and published some information on sort of the metabolic rate that top performing organizations have in terms of how frequently they reallocate resources, they take decisions, all these types of things. Um, but just making sure that your organization overall is at pace on this is important. Full organization agile could be truly you're fully agile. You're using QBRs at organizational level. Everyone is you know self-organized team. It also can mean you're using agile approaches in pockets throughout the organization and you're being thoughtful and agile in how you allocate resources between them. It doesn't necessarily mean to be you have to go 10 out of 10 on that. It can be that, but it's not just something that's being done in the software shop. It's being done as a mindset when you reallocate resources, et cetera. Exactly. And it's understanding where are the critical bottlenecks to unlock in order to get there. Yep. One of the elements of Gen AI that is sort of the most provocative is this notion of no human touch. We we hear about it a lot in terms of self-writing code, right? That instead of having an engineer develop a code to whether it's help accelerate certain processes or optimi uh, optimize certain elements of manufacturing or whatever, that you can have this, that it self-learns and, and it can do that at a much faster rate than what even an agile organization can do. And I think that it's a, it's a provocative idea. We don't see it 
at play at scale in a lot of different areas, but it is definitely something that we are seeing top innovators playing with more in certain areas of the business. I think to all the things that we talked earlier about this notion of the guardrails and all that kind of stuff, you don't want to take away the human touch until you know you really have it set up correctly with the appropriate guardrails. But I think that in terms of forward-looking, when you think about the potential of Gen AI and where it can really accelerate and drive differentiation, this is one of the big areas of opportunity. It's just one that also comes with a large amount of risk. So could you offer some guidance on how leaders should go about building these capabilities so the organization is ready to actually venture deeper into Gen AI? Yeah. So, well, how can I actually instill the practices that enable this around, do I set goals that say like, hey, can we run an experiment that has a no code or a no touch interaction, realizing that it's a guardrail for us for our approach? Can I actually force our budgeting process to go to more um, periodic or metered funding approach versus annual budget cycles? You know, can I make sure we actually allocate across these areas? And so I think there's lots of ways you can think about taking these learnings and applying it to your organization. One thing we also had done was actually to say back to this idea of well, how do companies start to embed the culture that enabled them to do these practices as well. We conducted research again across thousands of companies across multiple business cycles and looked and said, well, what do these people do differently? What are the markers of practices they take that enable them to be more innovative? Not just with Gen AI, but to create that base capability that enables them to be more innovative. And one thing we talked about is they, asp they aspire clearly. They actually have a quantifiable aspiration for what they want to get out of innovation. And that aspiration is quantified in that if you were to think about your revenue or work or whatever your metric is for five years in the future, and you take your portfolio momentum, you take your continuous improvement, your M&A, if you, those three things can actually meet your goal, your goal is not high enough. This isn't about just the generic, big, hairy, audacious goal, but it's about tensioning the goal with that. Because if you don't actually expect people to innovate, they're never going to focus on that versus you know delivering the quarter. And actually, quite frankly, you know the, the boardroom and the shop floor both actually know what that number is. They actually allocate resources very rigorously. This idea of funding and governance is not just a budgeting process, and it's not just done in silos, like this much to M&A, this much to CapEx, this much to R&D. It's actually done in an integrated way, and they do it in a way that is, again, dynamic. So there might be some funding that is allocated for the year, but when you look at their top innovation projects or businesses they're building, they're actually allocating almost like a venture capital would. Like what's you, you're going to get some funding to deliver a set of proof points that then gets you through to series A effectively. And they're doing that again, where they're trying to unify silos. They don't try to actually think about the R&D budget versus the M&A budget. They say, well, actually, if we have an overall objective to grow in a certain market, do we do a M&A acquisition to create a beachhead and then actually integrate the products with it as we go? And then they do two other things finally, which is they actually accelerate and de-risk. What I mean by that is I talked about the assertions and the assumptions. They really focus on thinking about assumptions and questioning and using agile development to challenge themselves. And they're fearless in learning. What I mean by that is they make sure that failures are actually celebrated. That sounds like a glib comment these day and age, but the common sense is in common practice. You can create a fearless culture where people feel like their career is not on the line because they took a bold risk and had a noble failure. That, that, that just can't be um, you know, emphasized enough. Indeed. Uh, that's a great point, Matt. And uh, in fact, we had a podcast on this recently called Taking Fear Out of Innovation. So if folks want to learn more, you can find that on our podcast. But now, last question for you both. 
What is the one piece of advice you'd have for our listeners to help them get smart quickly on Gen AI and how to maximize its potential? Is there a seminal article that you'd recommend? And besides actually using Gen AI, how would you go beyond that to really develop proficiency to be thinking effectively about the potential? This is about using it, right? And that actually goes to the core of the agile approach. It's about doing. We found this ourselves in McKinsey is we jumpstarted adoption because we because people just built the tools and we and they saw that the flood of use. And getting that going and showing not you know, not telling is just incredibly important. And I think these tools are easy and accessible enough that there's almost no activation energy to get it right. And I just encourage people to do that. Yep. The only thing that I would add on to what Matt said is as business leaders, you can help set the direction for an understanding of where in your business could an acceleration really bring strategic distance, right? Where could the types of advantages, the types of answers that Gen AI can deliver help? And where can it not? Because there is a little bit of shiny objects syndrome going on with Gen AI right now that it's not appropriate for every type of question. And, and helping your organization be thoughtful of where to deploy it and where not to deploy it is going to be really important. Matt, Laura, this has been great. Thank you so much for taking the time with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thanks to all our listeners for joining us today. As I mentioned earlier, we'll include a link in the show notes to Matt and Laura's article titled, Companies with Innovative Cultures Have a Big Edge with Generative AI, that was the foundation for this conversation. As always, if you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, just email us at ITSR at McKinsey.com. That stands for Inside the Strategy Room. You can also share your ratings and reviews on your favorite podcast player with many thanks to everybody who's already done so. We really appreciate all of your ongoing comments and feedback. Please do keep them coming. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to subscribe, you can follow our weekly series on your favorite podcast player, where you can also access our entire library of previous episodes. We also offer an Inside the Strategy Room collection page at mckinsey.com ITSR, where you can easily browse our prior podcasts across six major themes and also access written transcripts of all of those conversations. Finally, if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest publications and insights, we encourage you to sign up on our insights page at mckinsey.com SCF for strategy and corporate finance, or you can follow us on Twitter or X at MCK Strategy, or connect with us on LinkedIn at the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again next week inside the strategy room. <laughs>